Namo tassa bhagavato arahato sammasambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato sammasambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato sammasambuddhasa buddham dhammam sangam namasami So this is the ending of the first day and some of you might notice dullness, lethargy, restlessness, tiredness, so many things coming up, maybe not like the last retreat because we remember the highlights usually and we want them back immediately. But arriving takes time. We have to settle, we have to adjust to new conditions. So do not be surprised at whatever is arising and try to hold it as a teaching. Everything is a teaching. Every breath is a a moment of potential learning if we're awake and able to be present for it. It's good to remember letting go of the past, not basing our experience or not judging our experience according to what happened before or what we think should happen. You might have read somewhere in the suttas that enlightenment can happen in seven days or in seven weeks or in seven months or in seven years, or in in seven lifetimes, or much longer. But as Ajahn Chah very wisely pointed out, it doesn't matter how long it takes. What's important is not to give up, and not to judge ourselves, not to overjudge and not to devaluate, oh, I can't do this. Not to give up. Giving up the unwholesome things in the mind is really the kind of giving up we should do. And what's really important is to be generous. But the generosity here is giving ourselves to the moment, moment by moment, as it arises. And that kind of generosity is developed by following the Buddha's instructions. So you may all know about the Eightfold Noble Path. And there are certain qualities that we have to remember to apply here. And of course, patience is a really important one. And one way to remember that 
considering ourselves like a patient. You know, when you go to a hospital and you get that little band around your hand, it's got your name on it, your date of birth. But what it signifies is you're a patient and you're, you're going to get some kind of treatment. So just think of this as a hospital. And you don't have little wristbands, but you have an intention, a determination, a resolve. You bring a certain energy here. You've signed up, you've registered. So register in your heart, what is the intention? What am I doing here? And this is, this is a treatment. Is a treatment plan. This treatment, if it's taken up correctly, if it's applied, practiced, and then taken home, the treatment doesn't end in this mental institution. Because this is a mental hospital. You might be walking and sitting, and that's not the treatment. The treatment is how we apply our mind to free ourselves from suffering. Otherwise, why would you go to a mental hospital? Or any hospital? First, we have to acknowledge that we're suffering. And if you haven't realized that you're suffering after the first day, then something might be wrong. There is suffering. There might be one moment of it. Is there anyone here that has not had one moment of suffering today? Show of hands, anyone? Not a one. Well, we must be in the right place. This is a place for overcoming suffering. And overcoming it is to first acknowledge, yes, there is suffering. It's the first normal truth. So we recognize it, and then I'll ask another question. Is there anyone here who has not experienced one moment of joy today. Hands? No one's raising your hand. That's wonderful. So you've recognized that joy is possible in the midst of suffering. It's possible we're suffering, but we can still have moments of joy. And I hope the moment of joy wasn't just at lunch. <laughs> because that, that's not the kind of joy we're headed for here. This is the joy of letting go the world, the joy of going beyond the pains and pleasures of the sense doors. It's finding the joy in the heart, the joy of being present, the joy of waking up, the joy of remembering the path of remembering and connecting to the present moment. That there can be a joy just in that. It's a simple, subtle, it's a spiritual joy. This is what we're cultivating. We're spiritual gardeners, and this is the, the ground, the field of our work. So within acknowledging that we're suffering, we also learn and study how that suffering arises. How does that happen? So we see thoughts coming up in the mind, ideas coming up in the mind, feelings being felt in the body, perceptions, mental formations, consciousness. 
different kinds of consciousness around sense pleasure, around pains, and all the sense doors and the mind. Consciousness arises in its variegated ways. And we try with our mindfulness to, in a way, clinically observe. This is the hospital clinic. This is the observation clinic where we study. We're studying under the microscope of the mind using satisampachanya, mindfulness and clear understanding, clear comprehension of what is arising and how it arises and falls away moment by moment. So we develop an understanding of how this suffering arises, what, what is its origin. And we do this continuously in every posture. I wanted to bring up a very beautiful reflection from the Buddha himself. At one time, a devata, a devata is a celestial being. And this celestial being came to the Buddha and asked the Buddha, how does one cross the flood? The devata saw the Buddha sitting there, very peaceful, and could sense that this is an awake being. Maybe I should ask some advice here. This being has such a beautiful countenance, such a beautiful aura, and how can I also develop this way of being? There are these floods, the flood of sensual desire, the flood of sense of pleasure, sensuality. We all experience this. And then uh, there's the desire for existence, for becoming, or desire for annihilation, and having an aversion to existence, uh, a flood that invades the mind and prevents us from seeing clearly, from having that mindfulness and clear comprehension of our own experience here and now. And then there's ignorance, not having the knowledge of the Four Noble Truths, suffering its origin, its cessation of the path leading to that. So these are the floods that can invade the mind. And the Buddha said, I cross the flood by neither standing still nor struggling, straining. And why is that? Because when we stand still, we're likely to sink. And when we struggle, we get swept away. So what he was really referring to is the middle way that we're trying to practice. And usually we're on either extreme. What we want to know is how do we stay in the middle? Because there doesn't seem to be any solid ground when the mind is flooded. So the way that we can cross the flood is by stopping our belief, by abandoning our belief in this I, by emptying out this notion of a self, of a personal being, a person. I, 
identifying with the I. So there is no one who stops. He has been able to stop the world arising. Then there is no flood. One has crossed over when there's nothing more to cross. We have reached the other shore. And this is a great mystery for us who believe, like literally we think, that we have to either stop the flood or fight it, run away from it or fight it. And to stop developing goodness is a wrong way of approaching it. And to abandon that which we have already developed is the wrong way of approaching it. There are seven practices that one can do to cross over the flood. So the first one, we've discussed a little bit, is to see the Four Noble Truths. And the second one is to restrain the sense doors. And this is the basis of coming together in retreat, is that we're already doing that. We're trying to restrain the eye door, the ear door, sensual pleasures, and beautiful smells, tastes, touch sensations. We're celibate here, we're keeping our eyes down, we're not interacting, we're not engaging. We're being very, very restrained for a week. But do this for life. Do this as much as you can for life. Seeing the Four Noble Truths, great. Restraining the sense doors, these, these practices, we have to think of them not just as a one-week project, but as a lifelong project, because this could take our whole life or longer. Then we have to dedicate ourselves to these practices and take them so seriously, because to cross over the flood is, is not a one-week project. We have to understand how powerful the floods in the mind are sense desire, we've already seen from one day how difficult it is to keep the mind even, smooth, unruffled, untroubled, unperturbed, unagitated, undisturbed, non-despairing, non-discouragement. How difficult that is to keep bolstering our spirits and rising up to meet the flood a new flood in every breath. There might be a new flood. We must be present for it and cross over it properly by not believing in the self that gnaws away at our clear understanding of what is actually arising and who we really are. We ask these questions over and over again to see the emptiness of this being, to investigate that and come to a true realization of it by seeing that the suffering, it's arising, its origin, and its cessation, a moment of joy. And then how that arises and, and comes to peace is through the development of the eight factors of the path. Right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood. What's our livelihood here? Our livelihood is meditation. It's emptying out, the defilement. And then my efforts keep continuing, holding to it, staying with it, not giving up, not giving up. And the right mindfulness. Right mindfulness 
is perfected with patience, with application, with concentration, with, with the four right efforts of abandoning what should be abandoned and not abandoning what should not be abandoned, cultivating what should be cultivated and not cultivating what should not be cultivated. We have to see this and do it moment by moment, not just in the hall, but when we lie down to sleep at night, when we get up in the morning, when we dress, when we eat, when we go to the toilet, when we wash our clothes, brush our teeth, when we leave, when we drive away down the road into the world. We bring the world with us and we take it with us, but we must take the practice with us and apply. So this restraint is based on our ability to keep precepts. So you treasure the precept keeping rather than thinking, oh, just seven more days, six more days, and then I'm free. Wrong view. <laughs> wrong view. Very, very, very. No, no, no. Wrong view. And we're try- trying to develop right view. That's the, the door, the gateway of the path is right view. And the proper use of requisites in the monastery, we have four main requisites. Food, shelter, clothing, robes, and medicine. So, entertainment is not a requisite. We don't do entertainment. That doesn't mean we don't have joy. But our joy is from very simple, the simplicity of the life is actually incredibly joyful. And when you realize it's like not having to wash your hair, but really look forward to shaving. Just shave and it's clean. It's so simple. But the, the identification with beauty and, and looking a certain way is a very big obsession for the world. And it's nice to be neat and clean and cut the hair and make it look tidy. When you have long hair and you come to a monastery and you, you have to work in the kitchen, often the hair will go in the food. And we always know who's cooked. Because color the hair, if it's long or short, that kind of thing. So it's very nice when the Anagarikas cook, because they don't have hair. Such a freedom. There's so many ways that simplifying life frees us from trying to please the world. Why should we spend so much mental energy pleasing the world? It's because we believe in this person that has to look a certain way and be propped up a certain way, etc., to please the world. Now, of course, if you work, you have to do your job and present, certainly wear a uniform. I'm not saying you have to wear this kind of uniform, but just the neat and clean and simple and knowing that the true beauty is your virtue. It's not the clothes you wear. But it's the virtue. At first, the virtue is a beautiful way of speaking. How can I speak beautifully? And in itself, that is a huge field of practice. And the second field of virtue is our actions. Speech, of course, is a kind of action. And to have beautiful 
actions, that means you don't give people dirty looks because then that's not speaking, but that's facial bodily conduct is communication. So how do we communicate to ourselves in the world? How do we treat ourselves? Are we not taking care of ourselves well? And of course, the real deep field of virtue is the mind. That's why meditation is so powerful. Because if we free our mind from the stains, from the taints, from the floods, from the monsters, from the dragons that we so fear, really our fear is based on fear of fear. But don't try walking across Niagara Falls on a tightrope. This is not how to overcome fear. We really want to find a way across that flood of wrong view where we hold this to be who we are, this body, this body-mind, these processes, they're empty, very empty. Really? Then what is, who am I? What is this? Who, who crosses the flood? There's an owl at the monastery. The way it chants, the way it calls at night is, who? Who? Who cooks for you? Yes, we're very grateful for the people that cook for us. But here, we're asking, who is this person that cooks up this world? Who is concocting this world that we believe in? Who is concocting this self that we identify with? It's ignorance. It's craving. It's views and opinions. It's believing our thoughts. It's the impurity of the mind. So the, the most noble level of virtue, this field of virtue, is the purification of the mind. Once the mind is purified, then our speech and our actions will only be of the most noble quality. This is the truth. This is something to investigate. Don't just take these words, but we have to investigate within us. And the practice will eventually reveal that. So then when the Buddha answered the Devata, he's basically saying, no one crosses the flood. There is no one. That's how by not standing still and by not getting swept away I cross the flood, because I do not cross the flood. There is no more being swept away. So it's by removing this pin, this underpinning of our delusion that there is a being who crosses the flood, that no one crosses the flood. Because when we realize the emptiness of self, then there's no flood to cross. Another practice of course, is to endure hardship. We like it easy. I, I reflect how in modern times we, we have so many devices that make it easy, like really, you press a button and you can get so much information. You know, I grew up in the 50s, so there, there was the real, the old-fashioned Encyclopedia Britannica 
which were these big, huge volumes. When I was little, I couldn't even lift one of them. I couldn't even pull it off the shelf. And we were very excited when my dad bought this whole set. He wanted us to have knowledge. It was very sweet. And all these big books, 50 of them or something. Do you remember? They were reddish color with the pages were slightly gold tinted on the outside and the paper was very thin but strong. And you open it up and there were all these words and it seemed like the most wonderful thing. All this knowledge. I wanted to drink it all in, but you know, I never could. It was just too much. But we feel so powerful that by pressing a button, we can know so many things through Google. But this is delusion because that's not wisdom. That's just facts. They don't make us free. They actually chain us to the button. If we don't have that button, if we don't have that cell device, it's cell, it's like a little, so tiny, oh, so powerful, I can do this, I can photograph, I can communicate. Do people really communicate with their phones? Do you see people sitting in airports and they're just all looking at devices? And these are device, devices. <laughs> of modern times. They don't devise for us enlightenment or waking up to the truth. They lead us astray and lead us into delusion, more delusion. However, let me also say that there's some great value in like being able to get rescued quickly when you're in trouble, when you're in a car crash, when someone needs an ambulance, you can press a button. But the rescue from the world, no, not that. Even though there's a mindfulness app, there's no app that will help you develop the seven factors of enlightenment. And that's one of the seven practices. So enduring hardships means that we can't just press buttons. We've gone without a car now for a couple of years, and ask for a second-hand or new car. <laughs> and somebody gave us a 2004 Toyota. Now, this car doesn't have electric windows. So right away it reminded me how in the old days, when you get in the car, you have the chance to practice kindness to the driver by leaning over and pulling the button up so they can get in without a key. It made me realize how all this automation is preventing us from the simple kindnesses we used to just do. And you roll down your window, you don't have to bother the driver to press some button that you don't know where it is. And they roll down all the windows by mistake. <laughs> then they roll them back. And don't just take responsibility for your own window, roll it down a little bit. So we lose the ability to take responsibility for the most simple act. We want everything done for us. This actually represents a precipice that is dangerous. Because by eroding our little responsibilities, we develop the habit of eroding responsibility, and that's unwholesome. 
So get an old car. Or walk when we can. But to get to a teaching like this, we had to drive. If I had to walk here, <laughs> I would not arrive. Uh, certainly. I remember when one of my supporters didn't show up with a meal. It was a time when I had already been fasting. There was a, a landslide and people couldn't get to me, so I had missed the meal the day before. And I was agitated, and I thought, I can't do this, I'm really hungry. I sat in front of my shrine and I started crying. I just, I thought, I just can't do this. And then I realized I had made a lifetime vow. And suddenly, I thought, I made a lifetime vow. I have to do this. I cannot not do this. Because that's why the precepts are so powerful, because you give up, so you give up for a week. Well, what if you give up for your whole life? Can we give up these comforts, these ways of appeasing the senses for our whole life? So I've given this determination, this resolve to do this for my whole life. And then I noticed that I actually wasn't that hungry. It was my mind that was hungry, because I was being ignored or forgotten. And I remember thinking, well, people don't forget their pets. They feed their dog and cat every day. And I got a little ill will towards my supporter. Then I felt shame that I would allow ill will. The purity of mind is really what gives us the strength to endure these hardships without being critical, without blaming, without shaming, without fear, without anger, without greed. And to see what is the real origin of this suffering, that's not, I couldn't endure another day without. I had had breakfast, somebody had brought breakfast, and I could eat the little leftover, there was I think an apple or something, and that would be fine, that was wonderful. So simplifying and being grateful for what we do have, one crosses over the flood. Not me, myself, but how can this determination, this purity of mind be sustained in this moment, in this day, when I, the, the self, is not being gratified the way it's used to? Because people normally do bring a meal. But you become so grateful for what you do get. It's a magical formula. This is something interesting. It's an experiment. Try. Trying to endure a little longer the pain in the knee, the pain in the back, the tiredness, the sleepiness, the inability to concentrate. Just keep trying. Not over-striving, because when we fight the kilesas, usually we, we give up, we can't do it, because we're, we're striving in the wrong way. We're fighting instead of abandoning, instead of seeing the unwholesome, instead of seeing the danger. So we realize the emptiness, the impermanence, the dukkha of every conditioned experience. And we abide in the emptiness. 
And then there's no flood can arise in the face of that. Because that's a moment of freedom. And one moment of freedom at a time is the way we cross over the flood. One moment of freedom at a time. We can do one moment more. Painful sensation. Let go. Start again. Painful sensation. Just knowing it. Knowing it, seeing that it disturbs the mind. Knowing the disturbance in the mind. And little by little, seeing, investigating, where is that pain? What is it? What is it? It's throbbing, it's burning, it's piercing, it's, it's dukkha. It's just, we name it and we see it's arising. We see it moving. We see that it doesn't stand still. It's just all process. And it, then we see it's a flood. It's just our ignorance that is believing that this is a solid thing that's going to kill me. That I can't take I wrong. Can't wrong. Take wrong. There's no taking, there's no cannot, there's no I. It's just process. So the pain also, it gets worse and then it, it can actually disappear. And we observe. We witness. And before we know it, we feel joy in the heart. Wow! Where did it go? It's just sensation. Tingling. A kind of tighten, tightness. Ah! And then... As we observe it, it eases, and it, it opens us into another field of perception. And we begin to see more clearly, more truly, more purely, because the field is emptying into the truth of the way it is now, in the present moment. No me, no mind. Nothing to gain, nothing to lose. Knowing the Four Noble Truths, suffering, it's arising, it's cessation of the path. So we abandon what is unwholesome, and we cultivate what is true, and what will support us. And that's how the seven factors of enlightenment arise. Mindfulness, investigation of dhammas, investigation of these experiences, and how they arise and seize the truth of this moment and its rawness, the elements, we unravel the mystery of the body and mind process. And then the energy that we apply is until we reach the goal, it could be lifetimes we're meant to it. And then we start to have this pity, joy. It doesn't come from sense pleasure, it comes from the mental knowing, understanding in the true way. The bliss, the joy of being able to stay with the moment and stay and stay and open to the truth, the heart rejoices. There is a serenity, a tranquility, a calming, a cooling that arises from that and we experience a singleness of mind, a stillness of mind. When the heart is mature enough and the samadhi is deep enough, steadfast enough, then the insights will also mature. And we have upeka, equanimity. Equanimity is a, a quality that signifies the samana. One who 
develops this evenness. It's the quality of evenness in mind. A samana is a renunciant. We're renunciants. We've taken vows of renunciation to live in this way, monastic form. We have that aspiration that we hold that brings us through the gates of the monastery into the robes with shaved heads and an alms bowl. But then to develop that aspiration and fulfill it, that's still a lifetime or lifetime's project. Why? We bring the world through the gate with us. And we have to cure the sickness. We are in the mental hospital for life. And the monastery is a place of homage, of worship, living with our spiritual friends and creating a field of goodness for others to come and practice with us. So it's very lovely for us to come here and share in this field of virtue that we're all cultivating here together so that we can cross the floods of greed, hatred, and delusion. Mayam <laughs> <laughs>